This morning, we're actually going to get back into looking at those individual messages to the individual churches written to in Revelation 2 and 3. And of course, the first one that we come to is there in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and that is to the church in Ephesus. And so just a quick review of where we've been. Uh, in verse 1 of chapter 2, we read about Jesus' commission to John. And remember, there's at least seven distinct parts that we can find in each one of these letters. And the first of those is introduced in the same formula. And the only thing different is the name of the city in which these churches dwell. So unto the church of the, or unto the angel, uh, messenger of the church of Ephesus, write. And of course, if you remember last Sunday, we learned a little bit more about that prominent city, the city of Ephesus. And the city of Ephesus was at the center of much of the social and commercial, political and religious life in the Roman province of Asia. And we saw some of those different pictures of what it looks like now and what it might have looked like even back then. But it would have been quite easy, I think, for the church in Ephesus to take on some of that same culture of Ephesus. And that danger is something that exists to every church in every culture of every age. And so there's some lessons that we can learn just from the fact that these are in these cities and yet they are not to be of these cities. Uh, but then we reviewed the character of Jesus. Again, that's that second part that we find in each one of the letters. And for at least the church in Ephesus, it's found in the rest of verse 1, where Jesus says, or John writes about Jesus, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, and who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And of course, we learned already from chapter 1 that the seven stars represent the seven angels of the seven churches, right? And then, of course, the seven golden candlesticks represent the seven churches themselves, right? And the only difference between the vision that John had in chapter 1 and what is described here in chapter 2 is that here Jesus is walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So he's active among the churches. We can see that there. And so through this description, uh, we find his possession of the church, as well as his presence with the church. And really, that was designed by Jesus to help the Christians in the church of Ephesus to overcome the challenges they would face in that city, in that culture, and certainly with the issue that he's about to bring up here in this passage. So that leads us to point number three, all right? And this is where we left off last Sunday and pick up again today. And this is the third part of the letter, which is Jesus's comprehension of the church. And again, this is a common part. Uh, this is the common thread that we have, again, in all of the letters. And the common formula is right there in verse 2, which says, I know thy works. So Jesus knows the works of the Christians in that church of Ephesus. And more than likely, it wasn't just one church or congregation, as we would describe it. There were probably multiple congregations. I mean, it was a large city, hundreds of thousands of people. So... Uh, but this one group of body of believers uh, would have been split up into other congregations, and he knew all of their works. So he begins with some very good and positive things that he knew about the church and really could commend them for, uh, because there were some things going right in that church. And I think in every church, you know, there's probably something that you can commend. And obviously in this setting, there were a couple that didn't really have a whole lot to commend for it. But here, at least in the Church of Ephesus, they had quite a few things going for them. 
And so Jesus first commends their Christian conduct, their Christian conduct there in verse 2. He says, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience. So these are three distinct characteristics about the labor and the service of this church for the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is clear that the Ephesian church was a working church. And really, every true church ought to be a working church, where all of the believers are trying to exercise the gifts that God has given them in the place that God has put them. And a lot of that service happens outside of the body, but really a lot of that ought to be occurring within the body of Christ. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, it talks about how those gifts were given especially for the edification of the body of believers. And so the Ephesian church was a working church. And we need to make sure that we also are this kind of working church with works and labor and patience. Now, with those three words, we get a, a sense of that kind of service that they maintained. Uh, we see that there was great effort in their work. Uh, it, because it wasn't just, I know thy work, it was, I know thy works. So there is a plural setting here of their works. It was a general term of activity. So it was a, a, a church that was hustling and bustling. It was a church that was known for their activity, and probably their activity in their worship time, as well as in their service times. So the Ephesian church was actually performing their duties as a church, as a congregation. Uh, but even more, Jesus knew about their works and how there was great energy in their work. That is where we get the word labor from. Uh, the idea is something that is hard work. Now, when you think about coming to church sometimes, you probably might think of service. You might try to think of it being as work. But how hard do we put effort into the work of the church and of the service of the church? Uh, well, this word labor is something that Jesus is actually commending for the church. A lot of times we come to church and we think we're just going to kind of put it on autopilot because the rest of my week is full of work, where there ought to be labor and intense labor in the service that God gives us in the church. So this church was very busy. Uh, they were very involved in all of the services of their church. Uh, but even more, they didn't give up. And so that's where we see the great endurance in their work. They, uh, Jesus knew their works and their labor and their what? Patience. So whereas sometimes you can get, have that work and that labor kind of get in front of you, here we have an endurance of, of their labor and their work for the Lord. That is, they didn't quit. Uh, they didn't start something and then not finish it. Uh, they continued on, and they persevered in what God had called them to do. They were very driven. Uh, they followed through on their commitments. For this kind of church, it was if it was worth doing, it was worth doing well. It was worth doing right, and it was worth doing completely. And, of course, this kind of servant is being commended by Jesus. So this kind of service is important to every church of Jesus Christ, every congregation. We ought to serve in this way, with works, labor, and patience, because that is the kind of work that actually makes up a church. Uh, there's a principle that has been uh, talked about, not just in churches, but even really in business world, where there's a sort of 80-20 rule, right? Where about 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And that's actually a fairly common thing, not just outside the church, but certainly we can see it in the church. Uh, but I don't think in the Ephesian church that was the case. Uh, they were probably doing it as much as they possibly could, and, and the Lord commends them. He says, bravo, keep up the good work. I know that work. I know that labor. I know their, your patience. And so that's the kind of church that they were, the kind of church that we ought to be. 
but then something else that Jesus commends them for, and that is also there in verse 2, he commends their Christian convictions. Their Christian convictions. He says, I know thy works and labor and patience, and, and here's another three things that he commends them for, how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. So when it came to their conduct, their activity, there were three things that Jesus commends them for. Now, when it comes to their convictions, he commends them for three things. And so we see that prominent triad going on in this church. So the Ephesian church was taught the truth. Uh, we know that because certainly the Apostle Paul had been there. Uh, we know that uh, uh, Apollos had been there preaching. Uh, we knew that Priscilla and Aquila were there. We know that Timothy had served in the church and the congregations of Ephesus. Even the Apostle John was there in Ephesus. And that, this is, of course, the, the first church that this letter is being written to. So they were taught the truth. Uh, the Ephesian church knew the truth. They were grounded in that truth. And it showed itself in how they dealt with error. Uh, just like it says in Jude 1, verse 3, that we are to earnestly contend for the faith. I think that could have been said also of this working doctrinally sound Ephesian church. They believed the truth, and they took a stand for the truth. They didn't water down the truth. And so what do we see here in verse 2 is that there was reaction to error. Uh, Jesus commends them and says, Thou canst not bear them which are evil. In other words, those who were promoting error repulsed them because error stands in contrast with the truth. So when it came to certain issues, they saw things in black and white, just like we often see in pages of Scripture. There is right, there is wrong. Truth is not relative. And of course, we live in a world where relativism is even more prominent, at least for us, it seems, than it might have been even in that day. But truth often gets watered down, and we want to accept people at expense of the truth. Well, the Ephesian church was being commended for being a kind of church that promoted and stood for the truth. Uh, they knew that the truth is more important than toleration of error. And that is a true church of Christ. Toleration, from the world's perspective, is a good thing. But when it comes to the matter of truth and righteousness within the body of Christ, it is something that is to repulse us. And so that was the reaction to error. Uh, then, when we look at the second part of that triad of their convictions, there was resistance to that error. <laughs> it wasn't just being kind of having that gut feeling that this is wrong, they actually took action based on the word of God. He says, Thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not. So in other words, when there were some people that came in and they were promoting themselves as apostles of Jesus Christ, sent from Christ, and of course we know that there were the 12 apostles, there probably were a few others that might have had that designation, but here are some people that were purporting themselves to be apostles sent by the Lord Jesus, and they saw them for who they were, as frauds, as wolves in sheep's clothing. And so Jesus commends them. You actually tried them, which said they were apostles. So you didn't just take them at their word. You, you dug down a little deeper to find out the truth about who they were and what they were teaching. So they took action. It's kind of like when, you know, if there's any kind of sickness or even tumor, that you and I might have in our bodies, uh, when it's found, you got to take some, some action, some drastic action sometimes to deal with that error, to deal with that tumor. And so that's what they did. 
They actually tested the words of these apostles using God's word itself. Um, In fact, they also would have looked at their works. Uh, We know that this is something that the church is supposed to do because it's something that Jesus himself said would happen. Uh, You don't need to turn there, but in Matthew 7, 15 through 20, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits, by their works, right? Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs or thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. So what we find here is this church was doing the good thing when it came to error. They tested the spirits. They tested the truth. They would listen to what people had to say, even ones that said and claimed that they were apostles, and they compared it with what the Word of God had to say. And when they discovered that it was wrong, it was contrary to the Word, what else did they do? Well, they had a recognition of that error. It says, you found them liars, there in verse 2. They found them liars. Now, if someone were to call you that, you'd probably take offense, right? Um, And sometimes in this world... People don't want to offend other people. But here Jesus is actually commending a church for identifying these people for what they really were. You found them out and called them out as liars. They identified them. Uh, Of course, we know that this is something that is also common in Scripture. Paul, when he confronts people that are promoting false doctrine, what does he do? He calls them out on it. (laughs) In fact, we have recorded for us in Scripture names of heretics and what they were standing for. Uh, Of course, John does this as well. And what we need to realize as part of the church is that evil and evil ones that are purporting themselves to be some kind of leader within the church or a church, sometimes they have to be identified, pointed out, and called out as dangerous and as liars. And so we recognize that there still is a process that the church needs to take to combat error, to combat evil. And what does Jesus do here? Right at the outset, he's saying, good job, Ephesian church. You did call out these men as liars. You did identify truth and error. And ultimately, that's what every church should be doing. Uh, We are told again in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth. If the world can't find the truth here, or if Christians can't find the truth in the church, where else will they go? That's why it's so critical for us to deal with error, just like the Ephesian church did. Uh, But then there's something else that Jesus commends to this church, and that is their Christian character. Their Christian character, so their conduct, their convictions, and their character, verse 3. And another triad, you hast born, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. So not only did they have an outward strength as a church, and probably the, the world took notice when they saw this church, there was also a real inward character as well. Uh, it, they, they practiced what they preached. Uh, it wasn't just all about, about pursuing what was wrong. It was about pursuing after what was right in their own hearts. Now, it's interesting because these three descriptions in verse 3, if you look back to verse 2, are very closely related to the three descriptions back there. Uh, They're just in a different order. Uh, So remember, they they did not bear with the evil ones, but here they have borne 
Okay? Uh, there they had patience. Here they have patience. There they also labored. And here they also labor. And then, of course, one is added, and has not fainted. So I think the repetition of these three qualities shows that they were very real to them. And they went very deep. It wasn't just a, a surface work or a surface labor or surface patience. It actually was within them and ingrained within them by the Lord. And so what do we see from these? Well, uh, they had a strong spiritual fortitude. Uh, though they could not bear those who were evil, from verse 2, they had borne their challenges with courage and strength. So they had a fortitude to, to deal with error in the right way, and that is what Jesus commends them for. So they did all they could to take a stand for Christ. That is, they had backbone. That's the idea here. They had, they had borne these things. And yet, so often, sometimes when we have burdens or challenges placed upon us, what do we try to do with those? We try to get out from under those instead of to bear them and even sometimes bear our cross. And so, again, this was a positive thing in the Ephesian church. Um, what's more is that there was a strong spiritual faithfulness, again, dealing with that commendable quality of patience. And again, this is repeated for a second time. It means that they didn't give up because they couldn't give up. They had to do this for the Lord. They, they, they knew that this was important for the church. And even though standing up for the truth is hard, and many times very lonely, they patiently endured all of these trials of their faith. And again, that is part of the character, the true character of a commendable church. Are there some things that we need to bear up to and be patient through? And of course, we know who helps us with that, right? The Lord does. Uh, but that's the kind of character that a good church has and needs. Uh, but then we also see that there was a spiritual fervency. Now, it's one thing to be able to make it through trials and challenges and kind of come out the other side a little bit weary and worn and beaten down, maybe even griping and complaining a little bit. But here they had a labor in which they did not faint. So labor is mentioned here also for a second time. You have labored and hast not fainted. And so Jesus sincerely commends this church because they were not weary in well-doing. All of the things up to this point in his commendation were good things. And it was something that could batter them. It could beat them down. It could beat us down. But they were faithful and fervent in what God had called them to do. So when it came to their duties for the Lord, they were likely bold and fervent in spirit serving the Lord. And that really ought to be a quality for us. We ought to be bold in our witness, bold in our testimony, bold in our service. Bold is not brash, but rather bold is being strong by the grace and strength of God to overcome these challenges with meekness and fear. Are we bold or do we give up too easily when it comes to those pressures? Well, now we know what a commendable church and Christian really is like. But then there is one more commendation that appears in this letter, and actually it's found in verse 6. And this is where the outline kind of jumps from the one from last week. Um, but this one is there in verse 6. This thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So here's another commendation about Je by Jesus about this church. And this time, though, it's kind of surprising. Because it's not just about their character, their convictions, or their conduct. It's actually about their Christian contempt. 
Now, when you think of contempt, you think, well, that just means to be hostile or angry or, or, or having hatred in your heart towards something. And yes, that's exactly what contempt means. And here Jesus says, this thou hast. In other words, this is a good thing. This is something I commend you for. You actually have a contempt for and you actually hate the deeds or the works of the Nicolaitans. So there was something within this group called the Nicolaitans that um, this group within their congregations, something they were doing that was contemptible, that was actually hate-worthy. And not just hate-worthy by the church, but hate-worthy by Jesus himself. Again, look at verse 6. This thou hatest, or this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So are there things that Jesus hates? Yes, absolutely. That's what it says right there in Scripture. There are some things that Jesus hates. Now, again, sometimes we would say, well, Jesus can't hate anything or anybody. But no, Jesus does hate wrong. Do you hate wrong? We should all hate wrong, shouldn't we? Yeah, it's okay. You can answer up. All right. So I'm glad he's talking. But we have here again Jesus saying, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and so should you. Now the question is, who are these Nicolaitans? Who are they? What were their works that Jesus says it was a good thing that they hated them? Uh, well, these Nicolaitans are addressed again in verse 15. Uh, they're in the church of Pergamos. If you look there just briefly, it says, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and note the next phrase, which thing I hate. Okay, so Jesus hates the works of the Nicolaitans, but again, there's not a whole lot given there to us either. So who are these Nicolaitans? Well, a lot of time has passed, and we're not 100% sure who these Nicolaitans were. But when these were written to those churches in Ephesus and, and Pergamos, they would have known who Jesus was talking about. Uh, but there are a few, a few basic views. The first basic view is that the Nicolaitans were a group within the church who sought to have power over the people, which is what the name can literally mean. Uh, again, if you think of Nike, from which we get the word Nike, uh, which we've also seen already in Revelation, has the idea of victory or overcoming. Uh, if you're going to have victory as a soldier over someone, you're going to um, use power and strength, and you're going to have victory and power over them. And that's, that's what that word, or that, that word kind of means, to have victory or power over the people. Um, so there are some who believe that this group were something like what became the Roman Catholic Church hierarchy. Uh, where they, again, claimed to be apostles, all right? And they said, basically, what we say within these congregations goes. And, and so instead, instead of having a congregational form of government, it would be a top-down, hierarchical kind of government, and they had to respect them as apostles and do whatever they said, even if it wasn't you know, what we find in Scripture. Because, again, God uses the apostles to give us Scripture, Right? And so they would say, well, what we have are new revelations from God, and so you'd have to listen to what we had to say. So the churches had to do what they said in order to please God. Um, that's one view. So these were people that were just basically coming in and taking over the church. Um, 
Some believe that this group would also be similar to those who in verse 14, also there in the church of Pergamos, would have held to the doctrine of Balaam, since the word or name Balaam in Hebrew has a similar meaning. Uh, they would claim it also has the idea of having power over the people. Um, so that's one view. Uh, the second view is that the Nicolaitans were a group within the, the body, within the church, who followed the teachings of a man named Nicholas. And we actually find a man named Nicholas in the New Testament in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. If you remember when uh, the apostles and the leaders of the church there in Jerusalem were you know, struggling with dealing with the um, material affairs of the church, right? And he said, we need help. And so they had some deacons come. And one of the seven deacons, one of the seven first deacons that were brought into the church was a man named Nicholas. And of course, the other prominent one was Stephen, who was eventually stoned. And so this group would say that Nicholas, later in life, promoted teaching that resulted in promiscuity and immorality. Uh, so basically, those who hold this view that believe that Nicholas, who was one of the first deacons, actually became a heretic and apostatized from his faith, had said some things that basically uh, were basically saying that the body, well, it, it's okay to sin because as long as you're saved, you know, with, with your soul, it's okay what you do with your body. Um, and so it was okay to act in immoral ways. Uh, you know, we talked about in Ephesus about taking that pinch of incense and getting to the marketplace by putting it there before the statue of the emperor in kind of worship for them. The Nicolaitans, according to this view, would say, well, that's okay. Uh, because what you do with the body really doesn't matter as long as your soul is okay with the Lord. So there, there are some who would say that Nicholas, the deacon, was in fact a heretic. Now, a third view, which is related to that view, is that the Nicolaitans were a group who actually twisted the words of this same Nicholas, Nicholas the deacon, and then made up their own teaching that resulted in immoral behavior, which they described as the freedom of the flesh. Again, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. What matters really is what goes on in your soul. And, and so this is uh, sort of the precursor of uh, what you'd call the Gnostic heresy, uh, where it's basically there's, there's the spiritual and then there's the material. And the material in and of itself is not wrong, and so you can do whatever you want with your body. As long as you are trusting in Christ, you're okay. You got that fire insurance, so to speak. And so that's uh, the third group. Now, that third view seems to be the most likely view, since it's, other, since it's referred to by other early church pastors and historians like Arrhenius, uh, who lived from 130 to 202. Uh, he actually talked about what this Nicholas had said uh, before some of the apostles. And uh, it does seem like there might have been a group that kind of twisted his words to, to make it seem like he had gone off the deep end, and so they were following after him. Um, Tertullian also uh, was another church pastor who referred to this view, and then the church historian Hippolytus also refers to that. So, um, again, time has passed. We don't know 100% about who these Nicolaitans were, uh, but it seems like they were a group within the church who twisted the words of Nicholas the deacon in order to basically make up their own teaching that it's you have freedom of the flesh. Uh, if you're trusting and following Christ, you can do whatever you want. And that led to a lot of the other issues that these churches were facing, which was immoral behavior. Uh, again, even within those 
cultural context. Um, so really, no matter what view is held, the fact still holds that the Ephesian church was known for something that they hated. They hated the works of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus says, that's great. Now, if you think about those who would claim to be part of the church as a whole, even in our own country and throughout the world, there should be some things that we hate about those deeds and about those teachings and some things that we ought to be known for if, about our hatred of those things. And so this was some evil doctrine that resulted in evil deeds, and that is something that Jesus himself actually hates. And so we ought to be like him. So what are things that we ought to be known for for hating? That's something to think about, isn't it? Um, so all of these commendations, um, we see how we really should function and serve as a church, right? Uh, we have the, the right conduct and character and convictions and even the right contempt. So how we serve as Christians and as a church is important. But then uh, when we move a little bit further here, Jesus continues his message. And now he brings up a challenge, right? Every church has a challenge. Uh, and this challenge is a significant challenge to their very existence and efforts as a church. You see, Jesus knows that why something is done is even more important than how it's done. So you can do all of the right things as a corporate body and not do it from the right heart, right? And he says, the why is even more important than the how. And so that's why back in verse 4, Jesus transitions from commendation to challenge. This is all falls under his comprehension of the church. He says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. So there's something that Jesus actually had against the, this church that was getting in the way of their effectiveness as a church because there was something missing. And what was it that was missing? Verse 4. Love. Thou hast left thy first love. So they were doing all the right things as a church, but they weren't necessarily doing it all for the right reasons. A church's love. Now, what could possibly be a church's first love? I would say more than likely, it refers to the vertical love that Christians first have toward who? Toward God, toward the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if you really think about it, he's the first one that you can truly love in the right way, the God-ordained way, the biblical way, once you're saved. Um, all other love before that is just maybe a, a, a mimic of that love or just a, a slight mirror of that love, or it could even be a mockery of that love. But when you were first saved, that's the first and only time that you could have ever loved anyone truly and wholly. And that is a vertical love. And so love for the Lord is what Jesus himself said, if you remember, is the first and greatest commandment. Uh, if you remember Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus himself said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. So I think that's probably what Jesus is referring to. A Christian's and a church's first love was and ought to always be the Lord. And when you love him, he will be first, right? If you really love the Lord, he's going to be first in your time. He's going to be first in your priorities. 
first in your passions, and first in your service. Now, there are some others who would believe that this first love that Jesus is addressing is more the horizontal love, that is, between members of the church. And certainly that, I think, is related to our love for the Lord, because Jesus himself says in Matthew 22 that there is a second commandment, a second greatest commandment, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. So obviously, love for the Lord in a vertical way and love for each other in a horizontal way, they're integral. They're related. So it's probably both. And maybe they were dealing with these errors, uh, you know, speaking the truth, but not doing so in love. That certainly could be. But that lack of love for others was strongly related to their first love to the Lord. So what happened to their first love, according to this verse? What happened to it? They left it. So they had it at one point. It was their first love. It's something they, they knew about. It's something that they had experienced. But now they, now they left it. It wasn't in, in first place anymore. So it seems like the church in Ephesus had been so busy moving forward as a church, you know, heading the right direction, doing all the right things, having the right conduct, convictions, character, even contempt. And guess what? Their love for God and even their love for God's people was behind them now. Is no longer the wellspring of what they did. And, and that is a serious challenge, not just to the Ephesian church, but even to our church, to any church. And yet, that's something that we need to remember. Is Jesus Christ, as our first love, the reason why we do what we do? As a church, or even in our lives as Christians. Is our love for Christ why we do what we do? Is our love for Christ the reason why we get up in the morning? Is our love for Christ the reason why we don our Sunday clothes on the Lord's Day? Is our love for Christ the reason why we open up our Bibles each day? Is our love for Christ why we are a light and a testimony to the people in the world around us? I mean, we can do all that and yet leave our first love behind us. Or we can bring our first love along with us and really have that as the spring from which all of that flows. That was what they needed. And that is what so many... Christians and churches need as well. So after detailing his comprehension of this church, including his commendation of what was going right, as well as his challenge of what was going wrong, now Jesus says, let's get right. And so the next part of his message is his commands to the church. His commands to the church. Now to each of the seven churches, Jesus issues commands. And as we've mentioned before, there are patterns to each of these different parts. The only pattern or formula when it comes to Jesus' commands are the verbs that he uses. They're actual imperatives in the Greek. They're commands. It's very clear that this is what he wants the churches to do. And so to the church in Ephesus, guess what? There's another triad. Three commands. Note what they are there in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. That's the first command. And repent. That's the second command. And do, that's the third command, the first works. So this is how they were to make what was wrong right again in their church. So his first command is, again, remember. Remember from whence thou art fallen. And that first command involves the mind. Just think back, Christians, to what your first love really was like when you were first saved. When this church was first formed, 
when there was, oh, yes, all this hustle and bustle and activity and, and everything like that, and it was good, that was great, a focus on the truth, oh, but it came from a, a wellspring of love for the Lord. And that love for the Lord just spilled out to love to others. And it, it didn't compromise the truth. It didn't tolerate with error. It was still there. And so we need to remember what our love for the Lord was like when we first met him, when we were first saved by him. Uh, if you remember, this is what King David did when he was first confronted with his sin against God in Psalm 51, verse 12, or not first confronted, but when he was confronted with his sin against God, he prayed, Lord, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Maybe we need to get back to remembering some things about our walk with God. Remember when we were first saved. Remember when there was that fire and fervency in our heart. Remember when we were serving, not just outwardly, but inwardly. It was a longing, a desire of our heart to do so. Restore. So David remembered the joy he first had in the Lord. And, and of course, joy would spring from that love, that first love in the Lord. And that's what we need as well. The second command is to repent. And that command involves what? The will. It involves the will. Now, this command will be found in every letter except the two that are written to the faithful churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia. But this command is in order for them to turn back. That's the idea of repenting, to turn, to turn back, to make a choice, turn back to the first love that they had for the Lord. And, and, of course, related to that would be a further remembrance that we love him because he first loved us. And so the more we dwell on his love, the more we will turn back to his love and have it first place again in our lives. And then, of course, the third command is to do the first works. And this command involves action. So it's one thing to change your mind about something. It's another thing to change your walk about something. How many times have we listened to a message or even read in our Take 20 and God has convinced us something in our hearts and we realize, oh, yes, I need to change that. And sure, our will is changed, but sometimes our lives aren't changed. And so there's more to just repenting. There is actual activity in doing those first works. So it's clear from, what, uh, from this that what the church did was important, but why they did it was even more so. They needed to get back to doing the first works with their first love. Um, we're about ready to shut things down here, but um, as a warning and an encouragement to get them to obey these commands, uh, then we find the fifth part of the message, and we will finish this up next week, and that is Jesus' consequences to the church. Uh, there in the last part of verse 5, he says, again, remember, repent, do the first works, or else. <laughs> Have you ever heard those words from your parents before? Or else, right? Do this or else. I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except or unless thou repent. We will look at what that can mean briefly next Sunday, uh, finish our look at the church of Ephesus, and then, then move on to the church of Smyrna. All right, let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you again for this word that you've given us, and thank you for the commendations that Jesus gave to this church. And I pray, O oh Lord, that, that we will accept them for ourselves and, and really be challenged by them ourselves, but realizing that it's not just what we do, but also why. 
that is important as well. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you'll bless our service to follow in Jesus' name.